When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This one featuring Lord Daniel Finkelstein. Um, it's fascinating when the coincidence happens, when people have emailed in saying, oh, you know who'd be a good guest? Daniel Finkelstein. Uh, and a few of you have said that. Well, here he is, by pure coincidence. He was one of the first people that I asked. Uh, he's always been a great supporter of the show, so it was great to have him on. And he's absolutely brilliant. We talk about, as is always, wide-ranging, but we talk about a bit more contemporary stuff than perhaps I have done with previous guests. Um, on the day that this rec- recorded, he'd written an article about this Corbyn Czechoslovakia story. He talks about that. He deconstructs that um, and the, the pros and cons of such a story. So that's a fascinating discussion. He's obviously been close to various Conservative leaders, most notably David Cameron and um, and William Hague and John Major. So we talk about all those three, what it was like to work for those three, his relationship with George Osborne, his relationship with Theresa May. We talk about as well the fact that he's now a Lord and the experience of that and the positives of it and his background in the SDP. So we cover all sorts of things. You can follow him on Twitter, at DannyTheFink. You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, and you can tweet me, at Matt Ford. For those of you who know who he is, who I'm sure is the vast majority of you, you will know how well he comes across anyway. It's just such a fundamentally decent, thoughtful and likeable person. Uh, and he's got all those things in bucket loads in this interview. It was a pleasure. And he's one of those people who an hour just isn't enough. I looked at the clock and we were almost up to an hour and it felt like we'd been here for five minutes. Endlessly fascinating with a wealth of experience. There's only so much I could ever squeeze into this uh, hour with him, but I hope we got enough out of him. Um, He was just a a pleasure to sit with uh, for an hour and to pick his brain. When you're sat opposite someone who not only is a great writer and a great thinker and is a pleasant pleasant person to, to, to spend time with, but has also been so influential in so many relatively different eras, uh, even because politics moves so quickly these days. Um, thank you for all your emails. It's great hearing where people listen. I'll go through some of those in a second. But I am out on the road in the next few weeks, and it'd be great if you could come along. I know a lot of people want to help the podcast. Well, that's a way that you can you can help by coming to see me live. So I'm in, um, in the Glasgow stand on Sunday the 25th of March. I'm in the Edinburgh stand on Tuesday the 27th of March. I'm at the Bristol Redgrave Theatre on Thursday the 29th of March. I'm doing a best part of a week of gigs at the Soho Theatre in London from Tuesday the 3rd to Saturday the 7th of April. And I'm in Banbury on Thursday the 12th of April. If you live near those places, come and see me, bring a mate. You can get tickets on the website, mattford.com slash live. Um, Well, I shall leave it for now, but please enjoy, and I'm sure you will, uh, Daniel Finkelstein. Lord Finkelstein, can I call you Daniel? How should you I You certainly you? can, yes. I've got a bit disconcerted. When I was at school, my teacher started to call me Danny, which I've never particularly liked, so everyone calls me Danny. And I noticed he started co- commenting under my column in the paper. 
um, doing things like, you know, basically saying VG or see me <laughs> for my different columns. And um, he started to call me Daniel, which is kind of weird because it was his fault. Like, everyone calls me Danny. Wow, so that's finally... Does that feel like a sense of achievement that he calls you Daniel? <laughs> Except when he doesn't like the column. That was very annoying. It's very odd with relationships with former teachers. Do you still call them sir? Yeah, well, not online. But he did, he did, um, he did actually um, write in one of my reports, Danny is not a, uh, a natural-born essay writer, which is extremely amusing, considering that's how I've basically earned my living. Well, I mean, what, what would he like you to improve? Is there any part of your game that I, do you think is particularly critical? I think he was correct, uh, which is at that age I didn't read enough. And if I had to advise anybody about how to write better, it would just be to read. And so Anything I got in better. Anything No, that was another thing. It doesn't matter. But just um, reading other things, anything, in enough quantity will make you a better stylist. Well, there you go. So go out there and read as many copies of Viz as you can. and uh, The Times, obviously. <laughs> the Times, of course, um, where you currently ply your trade as well as being a lord. Um, we don't often focus on, on the ultra-topical in, in these weekly interviews, but you wrote a great article that I saw today, so this is on the Wednesday, about this Corbyn spy story. Uh, and a bit that really rang out for me was uh, the the comparison to Attlee, who was a supporter of liberal democracies rather than international socialists. And Attlee is someone that I think, to some extent, Corbyn is keen to emulate, that Corbyn's supporters are keen for him to emulate. And yet, actually, on this this form of socialism that he espouses, you think there is actually a, a key difference between yeah. the two? Well, <clears throat> John Bew's book on Attlee, I really recommend the new biography, and possibly the central you know, political moment of Attlee's career was his decision that instead of following those who were advising him to form a popular front of socialists, he felt the right popular front was of liberal democracies. And that is that was central to what he then did in office, to his decision to with the war, uh, to his decision after the war on the creation of NATO and on nuclear weapons. And he then he then passed that on to all future Labour leaders. And even Michael Foote has even though he had a different position on nuclear weapons, was in that tradition. And Jeremy Corbyn is the first person who departs from that tradition. That's what makes a discussion of his views on the Soviet Union still relevant, because after all, the Soviet Union, you know, the Berlin Wall has now been down longer than it was up. Uh, so you could say, you know, what's the relevance of discussing it? Well, the relevance is uh, that um, he departs from this view of solidarity of democracies to a view of solidarity of socialists, some of which are democracies, uh, but all of which are uh, socialist countries. And it explains his attitude to lots of things that otherwise look a bit odd. Uh, his attitude to, I don't know, um, uh, Venezuela or Iran, um, when you would imagine that somebody who was, for example, against uh, homophobia or uh, not in favour of economic collapse would be rather uh, against those two places. The story has so many dimensions to it, but I think what really comes across from it is a sense that the Conservatives haven't learned about how to attack Corbyn, that this feels very much like the sort of story they were placing during the general election, and the hyperbole around it from Gavin Williamson and from Steve Baker seems to suggest that they think that just by labelling him a commie or a spy or a terrorist sympathiser, that that will do the trick. Yeah, and actually, I mean, the result of the election seems to suggest that's counterproductive. My, my understanding is, and correctly, the Conservative headquarters has been trying to restrain people from making really? these kind of uh, comments because they recognise that it won't, it won't be successful. And also, they don't want to go beyond what you can support with the evidence, you know, which I think is an important principle in all things. Um, and um, 
but I think it's too tempting a target. Yeah. Um, there's obviously a big difference between the later claims of that uh, the um, that he was being uh, that he was some sort of paid agent, which I doubt on all sorts of grounds. I mean, he obviously did. He obviously was willing to take um, money from foreign dictators; otherwise, he wouldn't have appeared on press TV. Uh, but I don't think he, you, the Soviets, would have needed to pay him <laughs> to take a uh, to take the view that he did. That's not to say, and this is important to emphasise, that he has a Soviet-style socialist because he's not. Um, but uh, they, the the story that suggests that he was a person of interest to the Czech uh, Secret Service, and they tried to, you know, talk to him in a friendly way, uh, and then recorded their conversations, is both true but probably unexceptionable. Do you get a sense from your Conservative colleagues in the Lords and, and elsewhere in Parliament that they don't really know how to handle Corbyn? Well, look, I think we're. I think, fortunately. Uh, the point is dawning that Jeremy Corbyn is not, uh, you know, a main, uh, an ordinary person in the normal Labour mainstream. Uh, he's creating a new mainstream, uh, and it's a very different kind of politics. So I try very hard in my columns to analyse what that politics is, to look at the origins of the new left and people like Ralph Miliband, uh, who explains a lot more, by the way, about Jeremy Corbyn than he did about his own son. Um, <laughs> and <clears throat> to, and I think um, because. Lots of that is quite unfamiliar. People don't really understand who they're dealing with. And also, there's a tendency to say, uh, let's go, uh, that he wants to go back to the 1970s, forgetting people couldn't remember that. And I, I remember that in the 1917, in 1997 election, when I was working for the Conservative Party, there was this tremendous uh, effort to say, you know, we'll have the winter of discontent again. But it was in 1997, people had forgotten that. And it wasn't potent anymore for lots of people who never experienced it or who experienced it and now thought it was irrelevant. How much more so is that the case yeah. in the 1970s to now? Um, and yet, yes, a lot of people haven't, you know, learnt that lesson. But that doesn't mean that Jeremy Corbyn's views at the time were irrelevant. They're important in understanding what he says now and to understand where his vulnerabilities and also his potential appeal lies. In terms of uh, Tory campaigns now, and that last general election probably will be seen uh, as it was at the time as, a, in many ways, one of the worst campaigns ever fought by a, by a governing party, particularly given the strength that the party was in at the start of the campaign and the fact that it was a snap election. You're an influential guy, you're in the House of Lords, you write for the Times. Did at any point they come to you for advice? At any point did you pick up oh, the phone and say, what on earth are you doing? Thank heavens they did not. <laughs> um, and in life, anywhere you, near you, it. it's, it's not inconceivable they would have done. It's, that, that's, I had two lucky escapes, that was one of them. Uh, the other was um, that on the night before Ian Duncan Smith made his speech, quiet uh, man, the or... quiet man is turning up the volume, <laughs> um, I was wrong saying, would I agreed to take a look at his speech before he delivered it, and I said I would, and they never sent it to me. And that was another lucky escape. So you have these moments, you've got to be thankful. I've been in, involved uh, directly, or even um, the procurer of enough political fiascos, um, so I'm quite relieved when there are some that are not actually down to me. What are the fiascos, and I'm sorry to focus on them, but they're, they're often the funniest stories in retrospect. Are there any particular that's well, done that? I mean, the, 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 the most famous incident... I wasn't actually responsible for this directly, but was the decision to send a chicken round the country to follow Tony Blair in the general <laughs> yeah. election, um, and um, in because he'd failed to debate against um, John Major, and we were having a row with Labour as to whose fault that was. But obviously, 
quite sensibly, Tony Blair didn't want to debate John because he was miles ahead. Um, and we got this... Obviously, it wasn't a real chicken. It was an out-of-work actor in a chicken suit. Yeah. And the more that he heard Tony Blair speak, the more impressed he was by him. <laughs> so then I got a call. I, pr- I promise you, I'm not making this up. I got a call from Charles Lewington at Central Office saying, Danny, we're really worried the chicken's going to defect to the Labour Party. <laughs> and I had to have lunch with the chicken then for the rest of the campaign. Chicken and I always lunch. say, we lost in a landslide, but the chicken didn't cross the road. <laughs> Those things were always tricky, but... They- those things are part of what makes elections and British elections so much fun, is you do need that eccentricity oh, I mean, and stunts. We didn't need that much eccentricity, I think. In the 1997 election, we had, I don't know, we had... Um, so the a minister for the Conservative Party was... Um, he had to resign after threatening somebody with an axe. Then we tried to replace him with the chairman of the Scottish Conservative Party, who was married but turned out to have had a relationship with two male Conservative candidates and ha- also had to withdraw from the election. We had two ministers accused of taking money in a brown envelope from... Um, Al-Fired. Uh, Al-Fired, one of whom admitted that he had, and the other of whom, and resigned, the other of whom refused to resign. And then we had, obviously, um, H- you know, somebody in a white suit running against Martin him Bell, with the support right. of Hutch, Adastarsky and Hutch. <laughs> and um, we also had a government minister who re- denied that he was having a relationship with a 16-year-old Soho nightclub hostess, even though we strongly suspected he was and was in all the papers. So we could have probably done with a little bit less eccentricity in that election campaign. When you're as close to the leader as you are, and you worked for John Major from 95 to <coughs> 97, and information like that presents itself, do leaders, and are they, and was he careful to only know so much, or do they want to know everything in order to deal um, with it? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, they do, certainly had different reactions. So John, I think, did often think of it himself as the victim, which he often was, of a sort of sort of madness. Um, David Cameron could be irritable, but he knew he'd have to deal with it. Um, and William Hague was almost unbelievably calm. Wow. Uh, I just r- remember the time when... Lord Cranbourne is a very obscure political atmosphere, uh, episode, but had agreed a deal with the Labour Party over hereditary peers without telling William Hague. We were talking and about it, this uh, just before you you came, and it came up. It was going to come up in Prime Minister's questions, and we sort of begun to realise. And he sent Michael Ancrum to go and find out what was going on, and found out that this effectively he'd been double crossed. Um, and he um, and I just remember him being told, and I could see this was a massive political crisis. And William just looked at me and goes, oh, we'll have to sack him then. Shrugged <laughs> and took a sandwich from the plate. I, it was the most extraordinary thing. Dealt so with he, he was incredibly um, calm. Everyone deals with these things differently. But he, he did raise it at Prime Minister's questions, didn't he? Ambushed Blair over it. Yes. And there's that remarkable bit of drama where Haig sort of produces an ace. And then as the, as the piece develops, actually, Blair handles it in such a way because, of course... Actually, yeah. it was a it was a moment of weakness from Hagen. Oh, people real... people often said Tony Blair wasn't very good at Prime Minister questions. He was utterly brilliant, yeah. and he really was. Uh, and it was, but I do I do. So sometimes in politics, you kind of think you've given a joke or an idea, and you want to get the script back from the person and say, I think leave it to me, I'll do it. But with William Hague, that was literally never the case. And I and I just remember one time he there was a a, a document had been leaked to the Conservative Party from the government. And we had dealt with it because it was some sort of defence matter by 
putting it outside the lobby door, the doors of all the lobby journalists, without actually handing it to them so that, that there was deniability as to where it had come from. Yeah. Uh, and obviously the party thought it had been very clever. And the first thing that Tony Blair did was to say to William Hague, you were responsible for that leak, weren't you? And I just sat there and I thought, oh, my God. And William just looked at him and goes, it was a government document. How can we be responsible for it? It was just absolutely brilliant. And he thought of it straight away. It was the most brilliant response. Wow. Without, I thought, well, you got to, that's how, why he's the leader Shot of the party list. and I'm not, because I never would have thought of that. I wonder, in terms of handling a crisis, you say that uh, Major and Cameron had a particular response, but Haig was much calmer. Of course, both Major and Cameron became Prime Minister. Do you think, actually, that intensity well, perhaps is something that leaders well, need? I should say, in David's case, um, that he, although he could be irritable, he, he had this immense... He, he's, he had a lot of self-confidence and charm, and that rarely deserted him. So he dealt with it slightly differently. He just was a bit more emotional than William... Yes, I think it probably was. Um, I'm devoted to William, and I think he is an, um, a lovely person as well. Um, but there's no question that his own... The fact that he is himself so self-contained and can't imagine why other people need a lot of emotional um, tending yeah. would sometimes mean that he was uncomprehending of a cabinet, a shadow cabinet minister who would want some attention from him or that he, there were certain aspects of him that were hidden from the electorate and maybe the electorate from him. So possibly that calmness was a contributor to, uh, contribution to what is otherwise a bit of a mystery, which is why does this incredibly intelligent, witty, um, very nice person that people would, you know, who's incredibly successful now as a speaker, you know, so the opposite of boring and... Um, why did he just not make it with the electorate? Right from the beginning, by the way, um, we knew from the beginning that we had a real problem. Um, and maybe that's part of the explanation. He's a fascinating character because he really did, in a way, as, as many people do, require defeat to attain a level of respect from the public. It was only after that defeat that people start to respect him. Michael Portillo's been through a similar thing. To some extent, Ed Miliband is going through that now, although whether he will rise to the sort of standards that, that Haig managed after leadership are, uh, are probably still to be debated. Um, but in terms of John Major, we'll go back to the start, was that your first job in politics, working for the Conservative <coughs> Research Department? Well, it wasn't actually. No, my, well, my first... It was my first paid job in politics. But my my, my first serious work in politics was for David Owen. So oh, yes, um, of course. my first general election working at the national campaign was in 1987. I was running against Ken Livingstone in Brent East. I was 24 years old. I've got a letter at home. I was ridiculously young. It was absurd. I couldn't drive. And I've got this letter at home saying uh, from, the Na from the Citizens Advice Bureau of Brent, and it says, um, Dear Mr Finkelstein, it was so nice to meet you, comma, and your mother. Um, <laughs> so I was just too young to be a candidate but during that election I also um, had breakfast every morning with David Owen who was the leader of the SDP I think it, the idea was to um, kind of GM up and kind of suggest ideas the first I couldn't imagine at that point that anyone would want me to do that although everyone has seemed to want me to do that since so obviously he'd saw something that other people saw too that was useful to him and that was really fascinating um, to work uh, and but then, of course, the SDP collapsed. I was on the National Executive, and I joined the Conservative Party. And within three years of joining the Conservative Party, I was working for the Prime Minister. So what had attracted you to the SDP that the Tories weren't giving you initially? Oh, well, that's interesting. So I'm, 
you know, my politics, the most important part of my politics, I'm a son of two refugees. So my mother was a survivor of Belson. My father had been in Siberia um, in a prison village. My grandfather in Starobelsk. Um, and we were very much, um, first of all, liberal Democrats uh, with the small L&D. Uh, and, um, you know, very important to us on the rule of law and moderation was important to us. Mm. Um and, Do you mean in uh, a political sense or in a sort of puritanical? Yeah, way? well, I, I, I used to, when my mother died about a year ago. Um, I, I read a piece and said that her favourite joke was, apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the theatre? <laughs> and the reason for that is that some people who've been through her experience see the Holocaust in everything, and her experience, her view was to see the Holocaust in nothing, right? Because nothing was as bad as that. So she would never have a row with the neighbours. Uh, she would never join in a sort of row in the synagogue council or you know uh, she would never she never fell out with a friend neither of my parents did that was their whole way of doing it i try and live my life the same way although being in politics is a little harder to do that but i try really hard um not always succeeding um to, to follow that example and they um but that politics um my grandmother my 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 father's mother she used to say um while the queen is safe in buckingham palace we're safe in hendon central and that is a very good description of my politics, the small c conservatism of it. But the Conservative Party, when I was growing up, um, although Margaret Thatcher had um, just become leader in sort of 1979, 75, you know, when I was 13, but the Conservative Party had not traditionally been the party for an immigrant, for immigrant Jews. Um, and also it seemed to me at that time rather uncomprehending as though she'd sort of set off on a path away from the moderate consensus and the people that impressed me um, were people like Roy Jenkins or Jim Callaghan. At that point, I didn't understand how very different those two people were. Mm. Uh, the subtleties of that probably didn't occur to me for another 25 years, um, but that those subtleties are important. And so I was attracted to the right of the Labour Party and then to the SDP, you know, that that's where my uh, politics was. But I felt I'd been, I was very disappointed by that experience the experience and they also kept losing control of the party in a really serious way which is what's happened again and then they joined with the liberals and that was something you didn't follow that was the yeah the, no the line i didn't in the want I, I didn't so i was influenced a little bit by david owen's view that the liberal party wasn't a serious political party but also by that point the major political events that i'd gone through had been the minor strike and the fight over unilateral nuclear disarmament uh the issue of incomes policy um, the question of uh, privatisations. And on all of those, I'd sided with the centre-right. And then a, another um, another incident happened, which was I was working as a trade journalist in a, in a magazine not very far from here, in a computer magazine, uh, and there was a massive strike, which I thought was completely balmy. Uh, and I crossed the picket line to create this newspaper, to keep the newspaper going. And... As I did so, I realised that I was choosing the right over the left at this moment when I had to make a choice because the SDP was um, dividing and I thought the Liberal Democrats saw themselves as a party of the left and I was fed up with the left. And I, I, I've always seen myself, I remain you know, a moderate, a centrist and very strongly a social liberal. Um, but I felt we could win those kind of battles in the Conservative Party for a period we have. We're doing less well now. So for many people, the SDP... It's a real lesson on the left, particularly for the Labour Party, about how do you get a centre-left mainstream vote-winning machine that isn't beholden to the, 
people like Jeremy Corbyn, frankly, and people like Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson looked at the experience of the SDP and said, well, you don't do it from without, you do it from within. Was there any period where you find yourself working for William Hague in that 97 to 01 era where actually you're looking at a new Labour government that perhaps you'd have been very fond of in your SDP years? Yeah, although I did, yes, actually. There, there certainly were. I'm, I've certainly found Tony Blair very attractive and I uh, still do uh, impressive political figure, but um, I still felt his choice wasn't the right one. I felt that um, the idea of trying to be right-wing on the left would not be successful, um, that um, he would be able to do certain things but miss the opportunity when Britain had a lot of money to reform public services and um, I, you know, because I think he would be resisted by the left. So I, I wasn't attracted by it and I also thought it would come to grief after a while, which, of course, it did. Um, and um, so I, I could see that um, that attraction. Um, but when you, what you said to me did... But I but I wasn't... You know, it didn't attract me, ultimately. Um, I, I, I think the very interesting question for the centre-left now is, um, why did the SDP fail? And one of the things that people don't concentrate on is um, the split that happened between... David Owen and Roy Jenkins. So there was something quite odd about... So Roy Jenkins would accuse David Owen of being a sub-Thatcherite and yet also say David Owen wanted to be part of the Socialist International. And this was an attempt to suggest that his position was um, incomprehensible and confused. Actually, it wasn't, but it was very different from Roy Jenkins. Roy Jenkins wanted a new Liberal Party and David Owen wanted a new Labour Party. (laughs) David Owen wanted a working-class Plymouth Dockyard... Um, by the way, in quote, in parenthesis, he ended up being a Brexit, Eurosceptic, um, strongly pro-defence, uh, pro-council house sales, uh, popular alternative on the left to Margaret Thatcher, accepting the lessons of Thatcherism, but within the context of social democracy. Yeah. Um, Roy Jenkins wanted to be Asquith um, and... Um, and his signature achievements, which were great ones, um, on on social liberalism, were actually not very attractive to particularly attractive to David Owen, um, who supported them. But you know, particularly after they'd done it, wasn't a pioneer in that uh, particular area. So what happened with the SDP was Roy Jenkins went up, w- went in with the Liberals. The 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 SDP ended up with a load of Labour seats, but but but, uh, but Roy Jenkins won the battle over what sort of party it would be. So it became a, a middle-class party appealing to Tory voters, um, but fighting Labour seats, uh, and um, that that was a failure. So the big question over a centre, so-called centre parties, which party would it be? Would it be John Mann's <laughs> Labour Party yeah. or Chuka Ramuna's Liberal Party? Yeah. Right? Those are different. And if you want to put them both together, all you get is the Labour Party. Yeah. So then... Um, where are you going with that? So I've always been a bit dubious about the possibility of splitting off from Labour to create a new party because of the experience of the SDP. So when you're working for John Major in the run-up to, to 97, the polls look bad, the sun's backed Blair. How dark a, an experience was it? Because everyone presumes that it must have been absolutely horrific. There must have been moments of levity. What no. was the overall tone oh, of that. I, well, the first thing is I knew before I joined that we would lose the 97 general election because I'm not an idiot. And you, can <laughs> see, you could see that was going to happen. Although, you know, I, 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 I remember that 
discussing with David Willits whether the result would be as bad as 1945 or 1906, but neither of us thought it would be as bad as 1832, <laughs> which is what actually happened. Um, so we didn't understand the depths of it, and we hoped to avoid the depths of it. Um, there were moments... It was an amazing experience, working for the Prime Minister, attending political cabinet, um, making decisions about the campaign when your back was against the wall. Um, those were, And the Conservative Party is a hell of a machine, even in circumstances like that, when yeah. it was losing. Um, and obviously, so all of that was incredibly interesting. And I, it did occasionally get on top of me. I think if I'd had a better comprehension of politics, it might have been worse. One of the things that I've learned since then is how little um, you can change people's minds uh, with the things that you do, how little people are noticing. And, uh, do you mean during is, the campaign? Well, it's now quite, in general, so it's now quite a standard part of a political understanding um, that uh, people are not following much in politics. Although yeah. all of us, even though we know it, still under, still massively overestimate the extent to which people are paying attention. At that time, I was on in completely the wrong area in that. I didn't understand that properly at all. Now I have a much better understanding. So I remember ringing up after Philip Hammond made the uh, made the mistake that he did over national insurance. I remember mm. ringing up Andrew Cooper, Lord Cooper of Populist, and saying to him, "Do you think that he will end up? People will end up thinking he's a gaff prone chancellor." And Andrew said, well, they would if they knew he was Chancellor. <laughs> right? And I thought, okay, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, I always remember going to um, a restaurant with a friend and on the TV was a um, football match. My friend pointed out that I wrote a football column for the Times. Yeah. And she, the woman behind the counter was really interested, so we started a long conversation. And then eventually um, she uh, came to the fact that I wrote a political column. She said, I'm really interested in politics. So we started to talk about all that, and at no point did she recognise that my friend was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. <laughs> so which Chancellor was that? George Osborne. So wow. um, it, people just don't yeah. know these things. So um, if I had appreciated quite how little difference it was going to be possible for us to make, I think it would have been a more depressing experience. But we lived in the hope. You know, at one point during the general election campaign, and as a political aficionado, you might even just faintly remember this, we went... Basically, the Labour Party had promised to um, to match the Conservative Party on spending. Yeah. And I worked out that this meant that they were going to have to match our privatisation receipts. Yeah. And um, the Labour Party had promised not to uh, privatise the National Air Traffic Control Service. That's right, yeah. Um, so Tony Blair, in the end, solved this in the way that you can imagine. He just went, well, we are going to privatise it. Um, but during before that happened, and he just stepped on it in a brilliant way, um, we had several days of, you know, are oh, the Labour Party really, uh, you know, did the Labour Party say this, did they say that? And do you remember our air is not for sale? That yeah, guy, yeah. I've forgotten which, which, which of the MPs that was, Smith, and uh, Andrew Smith it was, yeah. He'd said that, and, and now they were saying they were going to privatise it. And I... I if I'd have appreciated at all that this, of course, would make absolutely no impact or difference whatsoever, it would have been a more depressing experience. But those kind of things did lift you. You know, you'd have a minor victory and you thought it mattered. It's true, uh, it, as a general rule, it's true, but there are moments, aren't there, when the public do tune in, whether it's a fuel strike or whatever it is. There are, there are big moments when you are getting more attention, where, where you can cut through. I remember having an argument with a, a former colleague of mine who was convinced 
that most people would know that John McFall was chair of the Treasury Select Committee. And I made a very <laughs> similar point to you. I was like, most people couldn't tell you the <laughs> Chancellor was. You'd be lucky if people could tell you the leader of the opposition was. How, they don't even know what Select Committees are. No. I think you have to learn that lesson really quickly in politics if you want you really to do, but have I, any I, sort of impact. I, we've, there is a much... But when, when they first started doing... When Gallup first started doing polls, they were so shocked by what they discovered about public knowledge of politics, mm. they actually hid this, these findings and, <laughs> and the fact that and what they discovered because they thought it would undermine democracy. I mean, it doesn't really because people... What people do know are their own experiences, right? Um, and... Um, they know what they think of those and yeah. what what they think is in their own interest. I think they're quite good judges of that. Um, but people in politics still massively overestimate the extent to which people are following, and they really aren't. It was a it was a rocky time for John Major, wasn't it? That I remember him getting egged and inked and all sorts of things, and even then in a Labour supporting household in 1992 as well. We were very sort of against that sort of thing, you know. It just felt very unfair to to assault someone. Been, How yeah. did he take things like that? Well, he was always, you know, he's like a very dignified person. He, he, I can't say that 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 sort of thing where he got roughhoused and didn't bother him that much. He, I think Tony Blair sometimes did get under his skin mm. because it. For those of us in Conservative Central Office, what then became apparent to everybody else, which was this ability for both sides of an argument. I think he was on their side. Um, yeah. We we all realised that we could see quite clearly that wasn't possible. <laughs> and we were looking at the national mood from outside it. Yeah. It was a very interesting experience. I remember very vividly on election day of 97, this incredible feeling of joy that there'd been change, which I actually understood yeah. and in some ways shared because, because I could see the party, the Conservative Party, being in power for too long but maybe that's a little bit also because I was an outsider who'd just come in mm. but the I remember feeling outside the national mood um, and um, how odd that felt and so we could see things about Tony Blair that then became completely standard Yeah, uh, I remember William Hague saying in a speech but I remember him writing the line himself um, Labour Pot there'll be um, uh, for three stages of new Labour there'll be um, uh, fascination. I think it was fascination, um, uh, imp- support, um, disillusion, and contempt. Yeah. That was the four stages of New Labour. I've got the disillusion run wrong. I've rem- misremembered it. It was brilliant, whatever it was. He was, uh, I remember Haig, because Haig from the outset did shine a light on. Uh, you know, that perceived duplicity. I remember one line about him saying, in one interview, he says his favourite food is fish and chips, and the other, he says it's feta genie and parmesan or whatever it was, you know. Linguini with Linguini, that was it. I remember that, was that very it. well. Um, but Major as an individual, what was he like to work for? Um, he was very nice, and I was on a sort of... I felt that I had a sort of understanding of his politics... Um, coming from where I did that maybe not everybody shared because he had this slightly odd thing of being the, seen as the heir to Margaret Thatcher but his politics were quite different I think yeah. and so were mine and so I think and I remember once at Chequers saying to him you know our strategy ought to be let major be major I think people are, are sympathetic he was one of the reasons why I joined the Conservative Party um, and I felt he should show that more and he gave me the distinct impression that he didn't feel he could, that he was trapped by the political party and even by 
his uh, visors and um and you know i suppose a harsh criticism was of him was that um he cast himself as a victim uh but a more sympathetic mm. and i think reasonable um translation is that he was one <laughs> yeah it had had major been major more how would history have been different well, I, I don't. I think Labour would have won. I think Labour would have won the ninety-seven election. But I think if the Conservative Party had understood the national mood for change and tried to reflect it, um, and not tried to win every argument that it was losing with public opinion, it would have done somewhat better. Not much, but it would have done. You know, in that. So in in the um, on the spectrum between those people who think you should make no U-turns because it suggests that you're incoherent and those people who think you should make lots of U-turns because it shows that you reflect public opinion but more importantly you put yourself in the right place I belong to the U-turn gang in that really in that, yeah so um, you, you know you, the, the, the obvious thing is it's better to be in the right place in the first place yeah. uh, but I <laughs> but I'm of the view that if you find yourself in the wrong place um, that um, it's better to just move from it I mean, we saw that during the election campaign, didn't we, with Theresa May, with the uh, the um, the tax changes for elderly people. Yeah, oh, it was the, obviously, the, the, the it was obviously right to move. And I, I would have been, I think, I think much too much emphasis is put on the idea that she then said she hadn't made a change. That that was a lobby issue, a, lob, a press lobby issue, much more than a voter one. But um, but I still think probably the right thing would have been to have been much more open that this was a change. Um, and to be much clearer, people that well, a mistake had been made, and they'd reflected on it, and just take it on the chin that people would say, "Well, you shouldn't have made one." Well, okay. I mean, I think I think it would have been damaging anyway. By the way, so well, yeah, sorry. one of the things that got that really became a theme of the major years, and this is where, to some extent, he was a victim, was of the behaviour of his own MPs that he couldn't control and sleaze was a word that weighed heavy on those on those years, particularly post uh, Black Wednesday. Um, and that was something that was hung around his neck, oddly for a man that was so straight and the public never really thought that he was sleazy, but the, no. the, the party was sleazy. Yeah, look, some of that was a metaphor, really, because the party was aiming for a fifth term. Yeah. And it was a metaphor for change. And one of the things that really struck me very much was after the Conservative Party had been in power, Robin Cook, and very shortly afterwards had that problem where he yes. had to decide between his wife and Gaynor. And, 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 Gaynor. Um, and um, the uh, the Conservative Party thought, well, you know, but now at last, Labour's going to have this problem, yeah. which we've had, right? How comes no one ever focuses on them? And we found from our focus groups that everyone assumed that, not everyone, but lots of people assumed that Robin Cook was a Tory <laughs> because he had an affair. They didn't oh, know who wow. He was. So uh, wow. it was pretty, pretty interesting. So that reinforced my view that to some extent, you know, you, you will get sexual misconduct or, or even not misconduct, but people leaving their partners and, uh, you know, sexual drama, yeah. let's put it that way, in in all political parties at all times because it's just how human beings are um but at times it takes on you know it it it, it conveyed a political message and wasn't it because it was in contrast to the back to basics message well, there was a sense that the tory party then was, was I mean, quite the, moralistic the conservative body lost well there were a number of things first of all the conservative body lost control of 
the spinning of John Major's speech and allowed it to be seen as about you know as about morals, and therefore that then excused what the you know it provided the excuse. Although there's always something that provides that excuse for people. To, even if it'll be someone's election leaflet where they had their wife or husband on it that provides <laughs> the excuse. But it it was as it happens, it was John Major's speech. But there's no question that one of the problems for the Conservative Party that the electorate was voting to change, and correctly so, was that was that the social conservatism of the party at that point was out of step with the national mood. Um, and, and out um, of step with you as well, probably. Sorry? Out of step with you as well. Completely out of step with me. I mean, I, I, you know, and I, I remember having a conversation with, it's not fair to say who with, but a senior Conservative that I really respect and whom I regard as, you know, kind of on the centre of the party, and being required to say to him, you know, homosexuality is not prostitution. <laughs> you know, I was really quite shocked by it. And there's a complete change. You would never get that now. Um, we should win that battle completely. Um, but at the beginning, you know, but the Conservative Party was deeply out of step. And it was out of step with me. And it had been one of the reasons why I hadn't joined the Conservative Party. And when I was in it, I knew that I didn't have that long in order to deal with it. And were the Conservative Party by the way, to go back away from that message, which I don't think it will. Not only do I think it would be calamitous politically, but morally it would be unacceptable to me anyway. I just feel that it, the Tory party has perhaps moved incrementally away from where you were, that it was probably closer to you well, in the Cameron years and now it's yeah. moved away the, from that the, a bit? The, the, there's no doubt that... Um, so that my kind of conservatism is being tested. Some of the um, positions are now so accepted that the Conservative Party will be for gay rights and, um, you know, for and against sexism and against racism and in a strong way will yeah. we'll, we'll choose to do something and act on those. And I don't think, you know, I think Theresa May is actually very good on those things in my experience. So I've not, you know, I don't have any problem with the Conservative Party, but there's no, on that grounds, but there's no doubt that those people who oppose that perspective are a stronger voice in the Conservative Party than they were. Yeah. Um, there are other issues that I worry about too, but we can go on to them later. Yeah, how do you feel about Jacob Rees-Mogg and the European Research Group and that sort of element? Well, I am... You know, in in any political party, you, you have to have allies that you don't fully agree with. Yeah. And, and he... You know, his politics are not the same as mine. I'm deeply out of sympathy with this um, social politics um, and my own view of the position that the ERG has taken up and on Brexit is it's not a reasonable, sensible position. Um, and um, because I'm a pragmatist. So I, I, I'm i a great believer that there's a correlation between GDP growth and social progress. Yes, economic um, reform is social reform. And, and so therefore, um, I believe, you know, and I, I know David Miliband would argue the causality goes both ways. That's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Um, so you make social progress, like, for example, greater access to universities or um, equality for women, that helps you make progress with GDP. Yeah. But it's also true that the more GDP you have, um, the more likely you are to make social progress on you know, tolerance and yeah. uh, equality and uh, uh, civic participation. And the Conservative Party, and it seems to me that the ERG um, is insufficiently seized of the importance of keeping the economy growing yeah. and over-interested in quite abstract, not irrelevant and not 
unimportant but quite abstract questions of uh, sovereignty, um, which I don't dismiss because they are important to some people and they have some democratic value and even some practical political value, but I think they're making the wrong choice. They seem particularly emboldened at the moment. I mean, a lot of people from the outside of the party say they're they're shadowy, they're a party within a party. Are those sort of accusations fair? Is the ERG something to fear? It's not not shadowy. I think that's... You know, you can always um, add that to anything. <laughs> um, you know, I think they're perfectly explicit about what they do, and I don't, I don't think um, Jacob Rees-Mogg could be accused of being reluctant to come forward with his <laughs> point of view. <laughs> um, so, no, I don't actually agree with that. Um, I do think uh, that the kind of moderate uh, mainstream of the Conservative Party probably needs to be a bit more robust in insisting that while these people are allies and they're in the party, they are not the people who... Def- if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Find it. In terms of Theresa May controlling the party, it's hard to imagine, even at the, even at the peak of the problems that John Major had, he still had a level of authority that came from the mandate he got in 1992 and there was still widespread public support for him as an individual. Theresa May doesn't enjoy that. No, is there true. any way she can get authority over the party? Well, um, so I think her position is very difficult, caused you know by that and by the size of the majority. And while well, you say John Major had that authority, um, you know, fat lot of good it did him. Um, yep. In many ways, the Conservative Party is more manageable than it was before '97. By a, for a particularly important one, important reason for that being that in '97 it was absolutely obvious we were going to lose the general election. Yeah, and. Um, now that isn't obvious, and I think it's really quite possible, um, but it's certainly not <laughs> obvious. Um, and that gives the Conservative Party a degree of discipline and um, loyalty that and and uh, that it otherwise wouldn't have. Um, so, but there's no question that she's completely undermined by the general election result and by people feeling um, that her performance in the general election didn't bring home the 
the votes and therefore that she can't be relied on to fight again and that causes its own uh, problems for her. Do you talk to her much? Yes. How often? <laughs> often. <laughs> <laughs> and does she... What's the nature of the relationship? Does she seek advice or is it friendly ear? Um... She seeks advice, yeah, um, and we talk. And I, I've I've found, I've known her for a long time, uh, and I have always um, admired and liked her actually. Um, and I think she is a she's a a very intelligent person. She has an extremely good grasp of her brief. Um, she is um, always a pleasant person. She's not somebody who makes jokes, but she's somebody who can get them. Yeah. So you wouldn't feel in sort of intimidated to make a wisecrack. Yeah. Um, but you wouldn't look to her to um, initiate yeah. such a proceeding. Um, and um, I always had regarded her as a modernising ally. Um, I I didn't think that the decision to pitch the Conservative Party to new voters entirely um, and to sort of sack its old ones was very well was a very good idea um, so I'm very worried about a kind of realignment in which the uh, urban educated young go to Labour and the Conservative Party um, seeks to replace those with older less prosperous voters in seats mm-hmm. that have traditionally voted Labour I think that will be demographically very difficult i understood the argument that seeing through Brexit um, gave the Conservative Party no alternative, but I didn't quite share it, and it wouldn't have been the strategy that I would have followed. Um, She has, um, however, correctly uh, decided that a government and a parliament that promised people a vote on Brexit has to deliver the outcome of the referendum. Um, And... um, I'm I'm like with Ringo Starr on this, you know, where he said, "What do they mean? They're not going to do it." Um, <laughs> I, I was strongly for remaining in the European Union. Um, now I've described Brexit as Baldrick's cunning plan, um, but I um, nevertheless, uh, you know, we asked people what they thought and promised people that if they voted in that, we would implement the decision. And so, anybody who who did that in Parliament, I think, has now got a responsibility to do it. And that's what she's decided to do, so I've got respect for that. It's a tricky one, because I'm, I'm minded to agree. The The argument that has a lot of traction, particularly with the obviously people who vote Remain, is that if people change their mind, that, that, that is a right to be expressed. Do you have if, any sympathy with that? Well, look, if, if they're, if they're re- I do not anticipate a very big change of mind before we make the decision to leave. I think one might come later, tragically, but yeah. I don't think it will come before. Do you think I think there is a hard? massive um, there is a massive penalty to be paid uh, in terms of um, a democratic, coherent, law-abiding state if we hold another referendum and either and we reverse the result because it gets one the other way, fifty-one forty-nine or fifty-two forty-eight. Yeah. I think if it becomes obvious that there's a massive change of public opinion, that would be a different matter. But I don't anticipate that's going to happen. And nor do I think that's where everyone should be putting their political energy either. In addition to which, the Labour Party has obviously decided it's not going to support 
reversing Brexit and have a second referendum. So that's not a viable... You know, so we, we ought to be putting our energies into how we're going to make this Brexit as good as we can. A difficult job, perhaps. It's a very difficult <laughs> job, yeah. Um, you've helped various leaders with, with Prime Minister's questions. It's not as good as it was as a piece of television um, in the in the May Corbyn era. Have you ever helped Theresa May? Yes, yes, I have. Yeah, often. But um, so, with what? With in which way? Jokes or yeah, uh, or arguments or lines um, uh, and ideas. Um, and it remains an extremely um, an extremely potent way for a prime minister to manage the Whitehall machine because mm. you are calling on all the departments to make sure that they have all the that they've got all their positions straight on all the big issues that you might be asked about and so it's actually an important form of accountability and although on the outside it's always seen as theater um i think it's um actually one of the most important forms of accountability yes. that the feeling the prime minister could be asked about anything and has to assemble a huge file with arts lines take on everything means they have to get on top of all of the topics that are current and of importance, which matter to people, and which the opposition leader then could ask. And in fact, with Jeremy Corbyn, this is accentuated by the fact that he doesn't ask the obvious question. So one of the reasons it's less theatrical is because um, with Ed Miliband, um, with William Hague fighting... Uh, Tony Blair, whatever you could, you could work out what a political professional would choose as the most yeah. awkward topic, and you would know that um, you could, and therefore both sides could then prepare themselves for what they knew was coming—a battle in a particular area. Jeremy Corbyn could literally choose anything, right? Um, he chose Brexit to, today, yeah. but he, he could have chosen homelessness. He could have chosen uh, the. Financial head of the Financial Conduct Authority. He could have chosen banking, uh, or he could have chosen just one of those things that he picks out of yes. you know somebody's written to him about something. Um, and um, this makes it does make it less of a theatrical occasion because it relies on both Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May making spontaneous jokes to each other, which isn't their long suit. Yeah. Um, and uh, but it was, but it probably increases the extent to which Prime Minister's questions is. Um, an, an accountability mechanism because it forces even broader knowledge of the whole system by the prime minister. So that is a that is a tangible improvement that Jeremy Corbyn has had. Yeah, on, I guess. On, on um, I mean, it's, it's slightly um, achieved by kind of slightly random approach. But look, Jer Jeremy Corbyn. You know, to understand Jeremy Corbyn, he and I mean this, uh, he's not a parliamentary democrat. Yes. I don't mean by that he's not a democrat. I mean it's not a parliamentary democrat. Yeah. He does not put. A huge amount of store in his exchanges in the House of Commons, particularly. I think he's learnt to value the impact he can make with Prime Minister's questions more than he did, and has improved as a consequence. But that is not how he thinks democracy should be run or elections can be won. It's not what got him into politics, is it? No, and um, and actually, I've got some respect for that. I've got a lot of respect um, for that. <laughs> particularly also, is he? You know, some MPs. William Hague was constantly. It was kind of like a referendum of his backbenches every week. Yeah. You know, would they still be on board for a leadership that was miles behind in the polls? And then he would cheer them up with a performance in the House of Commons and they would go away and support him. And 
Jeremy Corbyn hasn't really got that support on the parliamentary backbenches anyway, because some of them are supportive and some of them are not, but on different grounds to whether or not he's a good <laughs> performer in the Commons. Um, so it has taken out of the occasion some of the parliamentary theatre. Um, but I think he does ask serious questions, sometimes without much forensic um, uh, analysis. And in my view always without much of an understanding as to where you know so every week is a new expend a new spending or virtually every week is new spending demand but you know that's a political criticism it's not that's not a that's not an analytical one um so i've got respect for that particular approach it's just he doesn't see it and sort of is slightly contemptuous of those who do see it as an entertainment uh, i mean i i respect it on all levels but i do love it as a piece of entertainment and you worked for two of the the best uh, conservative exponents of it in, in Hague and in Cameron. Mm. Cameron really came on, particularly towards the end, um, and was ferocious, particularly towards Corbyn post-referendum, and there were some very memorable exchanges. Who was the best leader to work for in terms of prepping them for PMQ? Well, I did much more work on it with, with William Hague, and it was magnificent. So we had a, a t- the, the sort of core of that team was myself and George Osborne yeah. and William. Um, we, George, George's job was to impersonate Tony Blair, and could he and, do it well? And it's very, well, he was brilliant at it. And there are two reasons for that. One is could, because he's a very good mimic. Yeah. But a more important thing is because he's very good at getting into the head of other people and yeah. what they would think and say in certain circumstances. So, in fact, one of the ways that he often made his own decisions when he was Chancellor was almost by rehearsing how it would appear on the news, imitating a newscaster or the rate or John Humphreys or, and, and how it would come out and therefore working out, you know, how people would respond yes. politically to what he was doing. Um, anyway, so George was, you know, everyone I think knows that William Hague was very funny, but people probably less well aware that George is. And those occasions were usually funny. I mean, lots of the jokes did end up on the cutting room floor, but the um, but they were, you know, great, great fun to work for. And, and we possibly overdid it, ending up getting a, a reputation for great jokes, but less political sagacity uh, but it was quite tempting sometimes to do, to overdo it in terms of george osborne he, he obviously went on to be chancellor he's one of the leading lights of the conservatives one of those people whose political career cut short or perhaps just on hold for the moment as a result of that referendum and, and his part or indeed placing at the time of it do you get the sense that he's still got something to give to politics i always felt that he was a i, I always felt just instinctively that the public got him wrong, that actually I could see why he was caricatured as a as a, as a baddie, for want of a better word, but I always thought there was a lot more to him. I, I saw that he was funny and actually a social liberal. Um, Quite a strong one. I mean, look, yeah. the, the first thing I should say is he's a very close friend of mine, so it's not, you know, everyone always has their prejudices, so we all think we're more independent than we are, but with him I'm not as maybe as independent-minded as I am might be in talking about people who are more distant from me. He's a good friend of mine. Um, and so, uh, you know, with that health warning, I do find him very <laughs> funny. Um, and I think he's very perceptive, intelligent person. It's one of the things I enjoy about him. Um, he He's very socially liberal um, and quite strongly principled as a, as a kind of moderate market liberal as well. Um, and um, you kind of know where he's going on an issue like votes for 16 year olds or indeed immigration actually uh, where he's very liberal so yes I think on the left I think people always thought he was 
quite right wing, and that was a total misunderstanding of his position. Do you think he was ever hurt by some of the stuff he got? I mean, he 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 became almost a poster boy for almost the sort of nasty Tory image, didn't he? He was seen as a pompous, yeah, I, privately educated. I mean, I think he. Tough. I, yeah, I think he probably. I think he. You know, I think interesting enough, and it was also the case with Peter Mandelson. He could perceive it better the problem with when he was watching other people and he, and he saw yeah. less his own less the problems he was having you know that he was struggling with public opinion himself we probably didn't see that um but at the same time he was trying to make change happen and being at the center of the government and so therefore he took it on the chin i mean his view i remember his view he didn't like it when he got booed at the olympics partly yeah. he had his kids with him but he said to me afterwards you know if you're the chancellor of the exchequer and the economy isn't growing what do you think is going to happen yeah uh, you know, so the only thing that matters is can I get the economy to grow? I remember a, a very characteristic discussion where he said um, uh, he was going to take Ken Clark into the shadow cabinet, and that was his advice. And he rang me up before they did it and said, "Do you think this is a good idea?" And I said, "Well, I do think it's a good idea, but when you do it, people will say Cameron's brought that in because he doesn't trust Osborne because Osborne's too junior to do this important job." And George said, "Well, my strategy." Uh, for being thought a better shadow chancellor is just to be chancellor. Uh, so the only way of dealing with this is um, anything that helps me become chancellor is going to help me solve this problem, even wow. though it doesn't look as if it does. And um, he was very good at that kind of strategic thinking, very perceptive and very um, and very tough-minded about it. But obviously, you know, he still um, ended up you know, in, in the wrong place in in certain respects. He's now editor of the Evening Standard, along with a couple of other roles. Do you think? Do you think he'd ever go back into the Commons? I don't know actually whether he will or won't. I don't think it's impossible um, at all. I don't think he's ruled it out or ruled it in. He really loves being editor of the Evening Standard, um, and at the moment, um, genuinely, you know, if we have conversations about it, almost always is. Um, the cartoon was really good. Do you have anybody who can do a notebook column who would be funny? Um, you know, I want new young people to do this, and um, we're going to go after this campaign. He's really into it. He really is, he's really enjoying it, finding it um, very stimulating. I mean, he said to me, he had this occasion where he ended up at some event, and on his he was speaking. On his left was um, Tony Blair, and on his right was Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> and he thought to himself, I'm too young to be telling my walking on the moon stories yeah. right, for a living. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to do that. So that's what made him then do the Evening Standard. And that is a very typical thing for George, where no one else thought of it. And I must admit, I didn't. And then he sort of, we had lunch and he said, I've got, I need to tell you, I've got this idea. What do you think of it? And I, I couldn't believe what he was thinking of. But then actually I rang him back later and I said, I think you should go for it. He's proven to be a very popular editor, largely because he's not afraid to bash his own side, or at least bash the current Prime Minister. There's no lost love lost between those two. Do you think he sees it as a man who understands strategy as a, as a way to rehabilitate perhaps his own brand? I think I think his primary interest is that he thinks he has to he has to make a London paper work. Yeah. He's a centre right person in a Labour city, um, and he has to make you know you've seen the latest polls, you know massive swings to Labour going on. Yeah. Um, the uh, he's also quite unsympathetic to some of the arguments on Brexit. He himself not even quite, quite is an understatement. Um, <laughs> and um, he, 
wants to make that paper um, work in that environment. That is his primary... He wants it to be read and interesting and fun and um, authoritative. And so that's what sort of gets him up in the morning, quite early in the morning. Um, in terms of your own personal career and ambitions, obviously you have, you have a great career as a columnist at the Times. You're in the House of Lords. At any point in your... I, mean, I say younger, you're young for a politician now, but did you ever have aspirations to be Prime Minister? <laughs> I know. I was always uh, aware that I... Didn't have the capacity to do that, really. Um, but that doesn't seem I to hold think, other people uh, back. No, it doesn't. And I, it's a really debilitating um, view that, you know, that you should be the leader. I've seen that hold people back. I I, I did run for Parliament twice, once yeah. for the SDP and once for the Conservative Party. And I would have gone on doing it if I hadn't got a column on the Times and then it had started going well. I started to love it. I had a family and I thought, actually... Um, I'm really enjoying. You know, everyone always sort of talks about, oh, you're a Murdoch. Uh, you know, you work for Murdoch. And I was, and I always joke, well, I'd rather work for Murdoch, I think, than the electorate. Um, <laughs> uh, the um, and um, uh, obviously uh, the the uh, that is a that's a, a joke because um, you know if you work in in politics, it's like an honour to do that. But at the same time, uh, if you're an elected politician, it's quite a constraint on the things that you can say on the on the views that you can hold and, you know, the things that you have to defend. Uh, and um, it's quite nice not doing that but still being involved in politics. And obviously in the House of Lords you have a you have a role as yeah. you know, uh, to scrutinise legislation. Do you find it as arcane as other people do? Is it as bizarre being ennobled? Um, <laughs> so the most interesting but arcane element to it um, is actually legislation. So what's really interesting about about the House of Lords, the thing that I learned quite quickly, uh, is when politics has moved on, the bills that were announced nine months ago, a year ago, they're now trundling through Parliament and they've been gone through clause by clause. Somebody's silly idea, somebody's <laughs> new scheme, um, a lot of tidying up legislation. And incredibly, um, some of that is incredibly arcane, uh, incredibly um, detailed, and that has been really fat a real education really fascinating uh for me and it's given a new dimension to my political understanding and it's also a big responsibility because to understand the, the legislation to determine how to vote on it to know to work out when is the moment to talk to government contacts about the fact that you disapprove of something or you wish they would add something into bills those, those have been a very responsible great responsibility the the sort of flummery of the lords is let at first that was a bit disconcerting um and but it was also kind of charming and um as long as you don't end up taking yourself or it too seriously but do you find yourself in there giving speeches often and looking around and people are asleep is it, does it how much does it conform <laughs> well, to the cliche no, no, of i mean people fall asleep in any kind of i mean i was at a concert with uh, listening to kiki d on sunday and someone fell asleep <laughs> um people fall asleep in all circumstances so there isn't Occasionally, the house not occasionally, more often than occasionally, there can be an atmosphere of great pomposity in the House of Lords. Mm. There's no question about that. Um, but I'm equally often really impressed by and, and the things that I learn from people. Um, I, I, you know, to give just one example. I remember sitting in a debate about assisted dying, and I'd often the Times's position had, had been: we're for assisted, uh, we 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 we're for 
the moves that Keir Starmer had made as department as head, director of public prosecutions on assisted dying of a code that would show you when somebody who should be prosecuted for assisting with a, a death uh, and when they shouldn't be. Mm. And the times have been quite in favour of that. And Lord Blair, Ian Blair, the former Metropolitan Police Commissioner, just got, get, got up and he gave a speech saying, as a police officer, this is what we have to do mm. to, ins- to, to see whether somebody is abided by that code or not. In other words, we have to close their house, take their computer, close their bank accounts, investigate them, investigate all their friends, take nine months before we decide whether or not, all of the time when their loved one has just died. Yeah. Um, and when I listened to that speech, a whole lot of details which I'd not understood or appreciated, um, it, it moved me firmly in a direction I was already going to support the assisted dying legislation. And um, I do find the Lord's, you know, as often as you get somebody who might fall asleep or who might make a pompous speech, you get these gems and they often happen. The key thing I've discovered, and this, it was a a book of Giles Brandreth's um, (laughs) that I discovered this in. He was talking to the Queen of Denmark about how she coped with all these events she went to. And he said, how do you cope with all these speeches? And she, she said, oh, it's easy. I listen to them. <laughs> right? And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, she said, well, uh, nothing's that boring when you listen to it. Yeah, such a good point. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. So I tried it, and it really works. I, I recommend it strongly. And since I started doing that, I've learned a lot. It's, it, it's fascinating you say that, because uh, maybe not as articulate or as clear as that, but I will often, on a day off, just go to Parliament and sit on the balcony and watch the Commons, and I did yesterday, I went to Foreign Office questions, which with Boris obviously is more entertaining than perhaps a detailed policy discussion in the House of Lords. But nevertheless, if you want to go somewhere for a briefing on what's happening in the world, where there are a few places better than to make use of your right to be able to sit on a public gallery in the legislature of the United Kingdom and listen to people talk about the issues. So for me, being a member of the House of Lords is a massive privilege uh, and it's a big responsibility um, and the it also has one other thing, which is you just have to be careful not to um, think that you're there for some divine uh, advantage of your own, right? And Dis- start thinking that the- you're some genius that was uh, has been sagaciously uh, selected yeah. um, by an all-seeing mind, right? You know, yeah. politics is politics. These things are idiosyncratic. I was very lucky, and it was my turn, and hopefully I'm repaying that with a degree of diligence and insight, um, which I'm sure other people could also provide if it, if it happened to be them that was there rather than me. Um, and as long as you're always aware of that the whole time, um, then uh, you'll be fine. I might be making a wrong presumption here, but as someone who used to be a member of the SDP and is on the Liberal wing of things, was there any part of you that sort of balked at the idea of one day joining the Lords or even when you were offered it, thought, actually, do I want to be part of an unelected chamber as someone who believes in democracy? Well, you know, I was always quite in favour of an elected chamber until Nick Clegg made his proposal and I started to think about, in a concrete way, not simply thinking vaguely, I think it would be a good idea if we didn't have any unelected lords. Yes. Undoubtedly correct. I started to think in a concrete way, um, what sort of chamber are we going to be creating here and wondering whether it really be an improvement. Um, I I would I do not regard being in the House of Lords as as taking a position on whether it should be reformed. I think they're in a good case for reform. I think that 
a mixed house of elected and unelected uh, people might work quite well. Um, I think if you didn't do that, the kind of Billy Bragg solution of using the general election result to shape the numbers of people in the House or a mixture of people who can speak in the House of Lords and people who can vote, mm. uh, that could work. All, I'm open to all sorts of reforms. And I didn't regard myself as saying yes to, to being a member of a House that already existed anyway and that was going to go on existing whether I said yes or no to it. Um, that's not pragmatic judgment. So I made the judge, but I, but one thing is I was aware the moment you become a member of it, the um, the arguments against reforming it multiply in your head uh, because not only is the House of Lords full of um, uh, people who are going to uh, carefully uh, reform legislation, uh, but they're sage enough to include me in that. <laughs> How well selected does that... So forget the fact they're elections. They've actually managed to hit on the brilliant solution of putting me in, of all people. Uh, so you begin to... And, you know, it's hard to avoid the solution that that really does say something quite profound about the brilliance of the system. Uh, so I keep trying to remember, look, obviously having a legislative chamber... Uh, that is quite as idiosyncratic as the House of Lords is very problematic. And there are serious, obvious problems, One, which are that the majority in the House of Lords is often determined by a sort of random um, washing up of previous Prime Minister's appointments rather yeah. than by the merits of the issue. And that, in a revising chamber, should lead us to question it. So I am extremely... I, I accepted it while still extremely open to the idea of reform. Openly, I am no longer as confident as I was about how best to do that. But that is an insight that came upon me around the time of Nick Clegg's reform rather than after that. Does the enormity of it ever strike you? Do you ever sit there looking at the the gold throne and the, the beautiful ceiling and the coats of arms and the, yeah. the plush surroundings and think, as a son of an immigrant, I've done really well for myself. Well, oh no, not that last bit, but the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, I never, ever, ever forget it. I never, ever sit there and don't think this incredible privilege. It's very nice that it's me, but it could be a lot of other people. I'm, as it's been lucky that it's me, I need to do it properly and, um, you know, pay attention when I'm there. And uh, those, all of those things strike me a lot. Um, I, that last thing of paying attention when I'm there. Uh, possibly honouring the breach sometimes, but <laughs> nevertheless, I try. Um, so, uh, but the point about uh, and the point about being an immigrant struck me most forcefully when I was when I came in, and my mother, my father wasn't alive anymore, but my mother was, and she she couldn't go upstairs anymore, but they let her in downstairs in by the bar. My mother was, you know, was there in the House of Lords, and for her that was a big moment because she'd um, come to this country. You know, my my dad had been on welfare; they they really had nothing, you know, when they came here. And had managed to build this life for themselves and their children, and I think it was a wonderful moment for my mum. And so that was obviously, you know, wonderful for me too. But I never, but that last bit I don't make because I think it then it then puts too much emphasis on uh, my merits rather than my good fortune. I can't think of a better place to leave it. Daniel Lord Finkelstein, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, there you go, Daniel Finkelstein. Hopefully you know what I mean. An hour just wasn't enough, especially when we started talking about the Lords. I, talk, I could have done an hour just on the Lords with him. I wanted to ask him so much more 
as someone who sat on the balcony of the Lords and gone in there for a time, and if you've never done it, by the way, I know it sounds sad about going in and sitting, it's a public right of way to get into Parliament. You're allowed in there, you're allowed on the balcony, as long as the, the day isn't too busy. Um, for promises questions, you need to get tickets from your MP in advance. But just wander in there and have a look at debate. If you've got the time and, and you're nearby, it's worth doing. If you're going to be down in London for a few days, go and have a look at Parliament and, and go in there and listen to some of the stuff. You can go and watch select committees live. I mean, I've, I don't know why I'm trying to sell it like I work there, because I realise that even for listeners of this podcast, it might be a bit niche and you might think it's a waste of time. But that point he made about just that's how you make a, a speech go, to actually listen... There are so many different people in Parliament, despite the fact that it still isn't representative. There are some fascinating individuals in there talking about relevant things. Um, so, thank you for... I get so many emails, it's brilliant. But at the moment, people... And this is great. Just imagining where people listen is a really cool thing. Joe Morgan listens while driving on the M6. Dunk says, I don't listen anywhere exotic in Worcester, but I was in the audience for your recent stand-up there where you gave your first encore. First and only Dunk. I've never had an encore anywhere else apart from in Worcester... And I shall treasure that for the rest of my life because I imagine it will be the only encore I ever have. So uh, enjoy that exclusive experience. Graham Wilkinson listens in Wellington, New Zealand. Paul Matthews in British Columbia in Canada. I can't believe how many people listen around the world. It's great. Craig Bruce listens in Healesville, Australia, in the beautiful Yarra Valley. Been out of the UK 25 years, but Brexit has me interested in where the UK is going. He's going to be back in Glasgow. He's going to come to the gig. There you go. Take... Oh, no, that's Craig. Yes, Craig listens in. Did I say Craig? I've gone mad. I've started a new diet and I think it's slightly messing with my brainwaves. Uh, Daily Brennan says he listens to this while unpacking wine in one of his shops in Paris. I'm going to Paris in a few weeks. Maybe I'll pop into his shop and get a bottle of wine. Malcolm Tetley says Ben's dad here. I know Ben, he's a Forest fan, he's a good lad. He listens to this in Chiang Mai, northern Thailand. And Colette Morgan is listening to this in the North the Nuffield Orthopaedic Hospital in Oxford after ankle surgery. Well, get well soon, Colette. On behalf of all of us here at the political party, get well soon. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford. You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow Daniel Finkelstein, at Danny the Fink. If you would like to help the podcast, either come and see me live, or for free, you can just leave a review. Uh, now, I know there are other platforms as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and other things this goes out on, so just if you can leave a review and leave a rating... Wherever it is that you consume it, it really helps other people find it. So that's a small way which you can uh, show your appreciation. So thank you. And hit subscribe and tell other people too. So when the new episodes come out, if you could share it with your friends on Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media you're on, uh, that'd be very helpful. Thank you for listening. Uh, next week, it's a live show with Ed Miliband, which I cannot, cannot wait for, as you would imagine. Very exciting indeed. Uh, so I shall see you in a week. All that remains for me to say is thank you for downloading this, thank you for sharing it, thank you for coming to see me live, and The Political Party was produced by Daisy Knight. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.